Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You're one of these rare people that uh, manages to cross the divide between both compelling nonfiction and fiction, uh, which always struck me as a very difficult thing to do. You know, what I'm trying to do is paint a picture of the future, of where we are heading as a species, and that requires telling a story. And so sometimes I feel like I need to tell the story as a pure story because we are humans. That's the way we've always learned telling stories around the campfire. But the origin of my new book, Hacking Darwin, is that when I was on the speaking tours, the book tours um, for my novels, Genesis Code and Eternal Sonata, when I explain the science to people the way a storyteller would explain science, and I'm self-taught in the sciences. The last science class I took was in high school. So everything that I know, I've, I've taught myself, and now I lecture to hundreds, in some cases, thousands of doctors and, and scientists. So I've had to learn it in my, in my own terms. And when I explain the science to people in my own way, in a clear and, and just in English, um, I could see people's eyes going wide because they'd heard the words, they'd heard the words DNA and genetics and IVF, but they didn't really know how those words, those little data points fit together into this big story of where we are going as a species. And that's what Hacking Darwin is about. I, I, I'm astounded. I mean, if this is what you achieved on one science class on frog dissection, yeah. if only I, you had, if only that you was had the start. No, that was the start. And it's just, I have, I have such great interaction with these scientists. And, and basically what I have found um, is that every scientist, almost every scientist, and almost every doctor, with a few exceptions, they're solving a problem right in front of them, which is like, how do I cure this one person, try to cure this one person's cancer? Or how do I advance this one small area of research? And very few of them have the time and or inclination, it's not even their job, to think, well, what are, what are the big picture implications of this work? Like I was in Kyoto at the lab of one of the, the leading uh, geneticists in the world, and I met with all of his postdocs. These guys were all incredible geniuses. And I had I went around the, the table, and I said, I have two questions for everyone. One, what are you working on now? Two, what are the implications of what you're doing for 50 years from now? For now, everyone was so animated, oh, here's what we're doing, and blah, 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 and it was great. 50 years from now, people were clutching the table like they started getting sweats, like nobody could even answer the question. Is it because they didn't know the answer, or because they knew the answer, and it was terrifying? I think it was because they didn't know the answer because they were looking at, like their entire life was revolved around solving that one question and kind of to extrapolate and, and to put together their work and all these other people's work and say, well, if all these things are happening and if all of this change is happening at this exponential rate, where might this take us? It, just, it was just a different way of thinking. I'm uh, hanging out on the Upper East Side with uh, Jamie Metzl. Uh, who is a technology futurist, a geopolitical expert. He's the author, as you've been hearing, of this amazing new book, Hacking Darwin. And I'm staring at his shelf, and there's a bunch of other books he's written there too, <laughs> uh, uh, which you can check out later. But today we're really going to talk about the future of humanity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as most big stories start, 
with a small beginning uh, in case, well, I, I don't want to be derogatory, but yeah. you were in the Masturbatorium. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. That. I thought when you said a small beginning, I thought it was, it's like these, the egg is fertilized by a single sperm. It is, it's very small and it gets bigger. Sorry, so, I couldn't resist. No, no, no. Um, no, no, I have pictures. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. There's a reason why this is a podcast. <laughs> exactly. No, it's so it's so funny. So, uh, in the book, I I describe my experience of going to the fertility clinic, and I uh, and I go there um, with the intention of freezing my sperm. And um, so they say, "Are oh, well, why are you here?" And they go through their lists, and they say, um, first is, are you a donor?" Meaning, my my sperm donor. I said, "No." Um, are you having chemotherapy? And that's another reason why people would freeze their sperm. No. Um, uh, are you in the military about to be deployed? And I said, no. And then it kind of, they went through their whole list. And at the end, um, they'd gone through everything. And, and they said, well, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm thinking about um, possibly being the father of my great-grandson. <laughs> and they kind of looked at me. And, and they said, oh, all right, we're going to put other. And then um, they said, well, how long do you want to freeze for? And I said, well, I'm thinking of 500 years, but why don't we just start with 100 years? And again, they looked at me like I was a lunatic, probably correctly. And they said, no, no, we have one, three, and five-year plans. And then they said, but I guess you can renew. And then I said, well, how do I know you're going to be here in 100 years? And this, this woman who was the, the, the receptionist, who also was a nurse in the clinic, um, she said, oh, we'll be here. We just uh, renovated our office. <laughs> and anyway, so in the, in the first draft of this book, I begin the book with waiting to go into the masturbatorium. And it's like, all, I, and I describe, you know, what I'm thinking as I do that and, and placing that in the context of where we are in the history of science and, and biology. It, and it, it, is, it is extraordinary, though, that for the amazing cutting level of science and genetic research we still have dvd players in those rooms it's yes yeah anyway so so but then my editor said you know i think it's probably not a good idea to start the book in the masturbatorium like not everybody before they know you is going to want to go into the masturbatorium with you like get to know put it back in in, in chapter three but it, it's it's Absolutely true. I mean, I mean, <laughs> masturbation is, is, is a very old technology. <laughs> and DVDs are also old, but not, uh, not, uh, not quite as old. Well, and and it, it highlights just kind of how easy it is that, that uh, male sperm is easily accessible and plentiful. There's about a billion sperm cells. How long cells. does it last if you freeze it? I, I mean, it could last, you know, forever. I mean, this is really? liquid nitrogen. It, it, it doesn't... Uh, Crystallize? It doesn't, no, yeah. no. I mean, it conception. I mean, nobody knows because we haven't been freezing, but it could last, like, it could kind of last Are there forever. any organizations, I mean, you, there are kind of uh, sort of strange Cairo businesses now yeah. in, in Russia and stuff like that where, yeah. where you definitely think about their long-term survival, but at least they've got some plan for it. But does anyone freeze their sperms and eggs for very long periods of time? Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't know because it hasn't, this technology hasn't been around for that long. It's just been a few decades. Egg freezing I mean, has only been considered not experimental for four or five years. Yeah. And so, um, but I, I mean, why wouldn't we? I mean, my feeling is freeze everything, especially these, these, um, uh, these germline cells, sex cells, like freeze them forever. 
like, why not? I mean, why not protect our, our species? We have seed banks for rice and wheat and corn and potatoes, and we yeah. should have that. We should have it for humans. But just to finish the thought, so male sperm is is you know, the average male ejaculation has about a billion sperm cells, but eggs are much are much harder to come by. Um, and and you know this through your experience. Average woman having her eggs extracted in IVF, it's about fifteen eggs, and so that's. Kind of a logjam. We can talk about it. How we're going to break that logjam using yeah. stem cells. But it, basically, biology is at play. Well, the, the really interesting thing for me about oh. this start of this process of kind of rethinking who we are as humans, and as you say, hacking Darwin, yeah, really begins with IVF. Yeah, uh, you know, in the selection process. Can, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So IVF is like it's the core entry technology because before IVF. Um, conception happened inside the woman's body. And it's really hard. It's not impossible, but it's it's really it's much more complicated to apply science inside of the body. And so what IVF did is it allowed eggs to be first extracted and then fertilized outside of the body. And now you have these early stage pre-implanted embryos and they are in a lab. And that opens up the universe of applying science. And and so one of the reasons why I write about the end of sex for procreation is that the benefits of doing, having, procreating this way will over time just massively outweigh the benefits of procreating through sex, which, which will come to be seen as inherently risky and, uh, and dangerous. And so now that through IVF you have this egg outside of the woman's body but, but kept alive, um, it's fertilized with the male sperm. And then the first thing that you can do, which is, is done now, is you, uh, you grow it for about five days. You extract a few cells, which come um, from the placenta, what, will, what would develop into the placenta, and you sequence them. And now uh, we have information about these um, monogenic single gene mutation diseases and disorders and chromosomal abnormalities. Um, and these are things like sickle cell disease and Huntington's and, and Tay-Sachs. And so now with that information, parents are already selecting which of their pre-implanted embryos to implant into the mother. It's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. But with everything that we're going to learn about genome sequencing, um, then everything we're going to learn is, I'm sorry, by genome sequencing and by bringing together these massive data sets of genetic and life information, um, we're going to crack the secrets of the genome. And so with this selection, we're going to not just know about these single gene mutation diseases and disorders, but complex diseases, disorders, and traits like genetically complex diseases that are part genetic and part environmental, like heart disease, or traits like height, IQ, personality style that aren't entirely genetic, but we'll be able to increasingly understand and select for the yes. genetic components of those traits. And then beyond that, there are these gene editing tools like CRISPR today, but there'll be many, many gene editing tools, much better and more precise than CRISPR. So then on top of that, once we make these selections, we'll be able to go in and make a small but important number of, of discrete gene edits. We'll talk about CRISPR in a second because yeah. it's a bit of a blunt weapon at the moment yes. to be kind of right. designing yes. a human. Uh, but it seems like the bottleneck, as you mentioned before, to a more effective selection process is having enough to select from. Yes. So, yeah, because so, you know, 15 eggs is a, is a good result, you know. It's a, it's a good resource, but let's just say you, you start with 15. You say, well, 
I don't want to have deadly genetic disorders or chromosomal right. disorders. So, so let's say that half of them. Yeah, you know, maybe not half, but let's say let's say you start with fifteen. Ten of them are are viable. Um, you so you take out two because of disease risks. Now you have eight. Let's say you want a boy. Now you have four. I mean, you see that the numbers yeah. um, go down. But I talked about uh, these scientists who I was meeting. It was a couple of months ago in Kyoto, and these guys. It's the leading lab in the world. Uh, with a process of uh, deriving eggs from adult cells. So the way it works is you take any adult cell, but a skin cell is, uh, is skin graft is probably the easiest. You, you take the skin cells and induce them into stem cells. And this is a process that Shinya Yamanaka won the 2012 Nobel Prize oh. for. It's called an induced pluripotent stem cell. Is this like, like an epigenetic process? It is. It's, it's taking the cells back in time. Right. And so you, you induce... A skin cell into a stem cell, stem cell into an egg precursor cell, egg precursor cell into an egg. Now you don't have 15 eggs. You have, let's call it 10,000. It could be a million, but let's just say for this, let's call it 10,000. You fertilize all of these 10,000 eggs because, again, male sperm is dime a dozen. Um, and with an automated process, you grow these 10,000 for about five days. You extract the few cells from each, you sequence them, and then when you go to the fertility clinic, you have a choice and you get this spreadsheet and you have to prioritize, well, here's what I think is most important to me. It's certainly health. Uh, people will want um, healthy longevity, health span, but then you'll still have a lot of other options. And do I want to optimize for high genetic component of IQ or outgoing personality style? I mean, all of these kinds of things that now we see as kind of magic and fate uh, we're going to see as something that is subject to choice. Some societies will reject this for perfectly legitimate ethical reasons, and others won't. And then we will live in this complex, competitive um, environment where there will be a lot of pressures on people one way or the other. One of the things that is sort of missing from this is not just the perfection of the technology to essentially create more eggs. Okay. It's being able to understand how you know, genes express into traits. Right, and, yes. And because, I mean, you can give people all these options, but the, we don't fully understand all the complex interactions. <laughs> you know, that's exactly right. And, in, in, you know, decades ago, people thought, oh, there's a gene for that. There's a smart gene, a tall gene, a uh, whatever gene. Now we know that these are extremely complex biological systems. The, yeah. the uh, genetic system is incredibly complex. It exists within the, the broader system's biology which exists in dynamic interaction with and the environment. And there are other systems like the, the microbiome. Yeah, yeah. So we, we call it uh, the multi-omic biology. There's yeah. the genome, the epigenome, the virome, the proteome, the metabolome, the microbiome. There, there are all these ohms. Then there's this environment ohm. But this leads us to a philosophical question is, are humans massively complex or infinitely complex? If right. I was a, a more spiritual or a person of faith, I would say, oh, we're infinitely complex because if I was a, a believer, I would, would say, well, because we live in this world and, and it's a God creator, if anyone was a believer, it's like a God created world. We know that we can never understand this divine. We can never understand the soul. So how well could we possibly ever understand a human? Or you could believe, as I do, that human beings are single-cell organisms gone wild over four billion years of evolution. 
And if that's the case, we will increasingly, we're not infinitely complex, we're just very massively complex. And the way that we're going to crack this code is by recognizing that humans are a massive data set. Well, and so I was going to say, the yes. way you're phrasing this is now it sounds like a computation problem. It is a computation problem. And, and, but right now, we don't have the numbers. And the reason why, how we're going to get to the numbers um, is that we're going to sequence, in short order, many billions of people. And it's not going to be that people are sending in their mouth swabs to 23andMe to find out who their ancestors are. Um, it's going to be that being sequenced is an essential part of healthcare. Right. Uh, that, that the only way that a person will be able to get the best healthcare in the world in the, 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 the coming reality, which is basically already here, of precision, personalized, personalized medicine. medicine. Yeah. Like to have personalized healthcare, your doctors are going to need to know who you are. And so if you're taking a drug to be able to predict, is this a drug that will work for you? They're going to need to know who you are. And the primary way, not the only way, but the primary way of doing that will be through your ha having your genome sequence. So that's why within a decade, we're going to have about 2 billion people um, who had their genome sequence. And then we're going to have these massive data sets of genetic information um, that is taken from sequencing everybody and phenotypic information. Phenotypic means how these genes are expressed, and that will come through your electronic health and life records. And by using, by using big data analytics to understand this, we're going to move way beyond our simple understanding of genetics today to understanding the, the complex genetics of extremely complicated uh, diseases, disorders, and traits. And that's where this is happening. When will this baseline sequence even be done? Will it be at birth or at two years yeah, old? Yeah, so a lot of it will happen after conception because your sequence genome when you're a five-day-old embryo has most of your genetics that you'll have when you're born. But I think that um, it will just be right now, um, any child who's born in any kind of, in any hospital that is, you know, above, not in like the most the poorest parts of, of the world, um, they have a series of tests, like a little blood test is, is taken. That is just, that will happen to everybody because the cost of sequencing, it was a billion dollars in 2003, it's about $800 today. Within a decade, it's going to be about $50 or less. Right. Um, and so that'll just be, it'll just be a standard part of being born in a semi-developed country. So, so these, you said like the phenotypal modeling, right. it is basically your you know, your uh, health and probably personal biometrics that, you, yeah. that you've collected over time will update some sort of uh, personal data record. Yes, that, yes. That then shows how your genetics have expressed themselves over yes, time. Yes, exactly. And, and, and this will happen on an individual level, um, but it will also happen on a collective level. You know, there's a lot of resistance. I mean, people now are... are upset about Facebook knowing where they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea of, of such a complex human record seems today, yeah. you know, impossible. But do you think, what do you think will drive adoption of this? Is it insurance? Well, in, you know, insurance is a double-edged sword because, um, you know, right now in the United States, um, we have a thing where there's a fight over whether insurers will cover pre-existing conditions. And yeah. so Obamacare said that they have to. Once we start sequencing everybody, we're going to realize that everybody has a multiple pre-existing conditions. You seem perfectly healthy, but everybody has these things that are growing in them, and some of which are great and some of which are, are terrible. And once you can look under the hood, we're going to see all of that. Um, but I certainly think that, that at least in countries with rational healthcare systems, 
the providers of healthcare will and should have a long-term interest in the health of an individual. Right. So in the United States, that doesn't exist because average person changes um, health providers every 18 months. But in a country like the UK, where the state is paying, which is a much better system than, than here, the state has an interest in giving you information. If you have a, a heightened risk for breast cancer or type 2 diabetes, the state has an interest both in you knowing that and in helping you take actions that can prevent those negative potentials from being realized. And so that's, and so it makes a lot of sense, but, but there's, a, a, there's a tension between this individual desire for greater privacy and a collective need to have these big data pools from which these insights there's can be There's another economic dimension to this as well, which is, I mean, part of the problem here is, is that uh, pharma companies are incentivized to put people into long-term treatment plans right. to manage conditions rather right. than eliminate those conditions happening. So, yeah. you know, you've got a very expensive healthcare insurance system because yeah. you've got a different approach to wellness. You know, and, and the, it's hard to benchmark anything based on the insanity of the U.S. healthcare system. It's like all of the incentives are wrong. Um, and you go to the hospital, they are incentivized to do surgeries on you. And if they screw up, they're rewarded for, for screwing up. So, but the, the thing is, there were previous technologies like nuclear weapons or whatever. You needed a state. Um, the U.S. for a long time has been the most technically advanced country in the world. But now this technology is dispersed around the world. So countries like even the entire United States could opt out of the genetics revolution 100%. It wouldn't really slow the development or the application of these technologies. It would just mean that it didn't happen here. What do you think is on the immediate short-term horizon of the next 10 years? Like, what, what do you think of this vision will have happened by 2030? Yeah. So you can also, I mean, what, question one is what's happening today? So already today in, in countries of Northern Europe, for example, about in Norway and Denmark, about 10% of people are, who are having kids are having kids through IVF. Hmm. So that's already a big change. And their biology isn't different than is ours. Is that because of an infertility problem? No, no. Biology is exactly the same. It's a cultural change. It's right. a cultural change of the recognition of how to apply science. So I think that... So, the, so these people maybe even could have had normal kids, but they're electing to go straight to IVF. These kids are normal kids. I mean, oh, they, no, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. I know, I know. What I'm saying is, I think we are going to move away from sex. I think right now, if you meet somebody uh, and they like here in New York, we have this terrible measles outbreak and you meet someone and they say, hey, I, I love nature. Um, if God would have wanted us to be immunized, we would have been born immunized. Therefore, I am not immunizing my kids. And most people, myself included, when you meet that person, you say like, you're a lunatic. You are not only endangering your kids, you're endangering everybody else's kids. And I think that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when you meet somebody who says, you know, if God would have wanted us to have kids in IVF clinics, there would have been an IVF clinic in the Garden of Eden. And I, do, I don't see any record of that. And you could say, well, all right, well, that's, that's one way of thinking. And then you'll kind of leave and you say, John, I, you'd say, like, that seemed like a nice person. I hope their kid isn't born with some terrible genetic disease right. because they're going to feel really bad that they, they did this. To their kids, just as like when you see someone whose kid has measles, you think. So you think in in ten years, what we'll really see is a big cultural change in the way we yes. think about conception. Yes, and I think it's going to happen just little step by little step. Like people ask me, when are designer babies going going to show up? And I think it's the wrong question because 
it's already showing up in the sense that these things that we just think are totally normal, like um, are you, you get pregnant and then you have um, all these prenatal screenings and prenatal vitamins and then you have your baby in a, in a hospital. I mean, these, it's not like these are quote unquote natural things. And now, you know, people are pretty comfortable with IVF. That's pretty natural. I mean, you could say, well, that's designer. People are already selecting embryos through um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So that's kind of, uh, of normalized. Last year, uh, 2018 in China, we had the first case of uh, human embryos being edited, gene edited of children who were born uh, last, uh, last October, even though in my mind it was a, a, a done in a very irresponsible way by the, in my view, unethical Chinese scientist, He uh, Zhongkui. Um, so we've already crossed these things, and we're just going to be doing more, and it's going to be more will, and more in the will, options. Will we increase. see, I, I mean, you know, on those two fronts of the cultural change, yeah. we'll have better AI algorithms, data sets, mm. so we'll, we'll, there'll be more active selection, I guess, by, yes. by 2030. Yeah. Will we see gene editing as, as common practice by then? I mean, by or, 2030, I don't think it'll be common practice, but it will certainly be happening, particularly in cases um, where people have single gene mutation uh, disorders or the potential because these will be pre-implanted uh, um, like embryos. Yes, but but, it, but no, no. The, the thing that happened in China was extremely unethical because the, these kids, by all intents and purposes, would have been born fine. There was, there was nothing that was being... They, oh. they were being given an enhancement and it probably didn't even uh, succeed. But I think the first case... The first cases should be and will be uh, people who have um, these uh, uh, these pre-implanted embryos that are that are going to have expressed these uh, single gene mutation diseases and disorders, and many of those could be addressed just through embryo selection. So if you right. just the embryos, but a, a smaller percentage of those, you will be able to actually go in uh, and make these kinds of. of of edits and it needs to be very focused and very precise and the science is certainly not there yet um, but it will be and that's going to open the door and so that will certainly happen within a decade but then that's going to open the door to other just small changes and whether these are small edits and maybe like a one single letter to eliminate some kind of risk but then there will be small changes to uh, provide some kind of enhancement. And people like to think, well, I'm for therapeutic applications and I'm against enhancement, but there will be no clear boundary where one ends and the other begins. I mean, the frontier of what's acceptable and what's natural is always shifting. Yeah, no, I think this is, this yes. is one of the points you made in the book yeah. in a very, in, in a very uh, lucid way. But the other thing that people... Um, are very sensitive about is the degree to which this also inspires class or nationalistic right. competition. Yeah. And at the moment, IVF is prohibitively expensive. Yes. Uh, you know, well, it is in some places. A place like Israel is provided in the national health plan. So it, it's, right. it's expensive because societies have made certain decisions and that will change. I mean, once so, so, yeah. so you don't see these, these you know, advanced... To have a superior baby through these new technologies... Well, be careful with the word superior. It'll just be different. Like, what, what's superior, what's not superior? Well, we can talk mean, about high, high IQ, uh, more disease resistance, longer lifespan? Yes, I mean... I mean, how, how far can you stretch the word different before that? You know, it's true in a way, but it's a really essential point that there's no good and bad in evolution. There is only being particularly well suited for a given environment. And when that environment changes, 
something that may have been well suited in one environment may not be well suited in that other environment. So I think that it's it's really difficult. And and I I say this is coming back to my personal story. I mean, this stuff is very sensitive. And my father and grandparents came to the United States as refugees from Nazism. My father was yeah. born in Austria, and they had a very sophisticated. Uh... Would not only that. If you had asked the Nazis, "What are you doing?" they would have told you, "We are implementing Darwinism." That was the, that's the essence of Nazism. Like that's what they thought they were doing. And that and that, um, and so for me and my family was on kind of the wrong side of that analysis. You know, I've got my story. It's like, well, wait a second. I mean, like you were killing like the greatest scientists and composers and professors and business people in your society in the name of this thing that you were absolutely convinced was superior. And so I think we need to have a level of humility about this because we need to make sure that we we don't get into that mindset. Having said that, parents in the places where this is legal are going to have a lot of choices. And I definitely think that it's in the government's interests in many societies where there where to one, have a broad conversation about how these technologies, how can we integrate our best values into the decision-making mm-hmm. process? And two, to have democratic access so we don't have this thing where, where people are feeling like I'm genetically better than somebody else. But having said that, these are incredibly powerful technologies. People are going to have, no matter what governments do, there are going to be differential levels of access. Wealth is going to provide that access and this is a future that's that's coming. I think that's why we need to have these conversations now. That's why governments need to be involved and we're not there yet where that like now even if you say I want to throw all the technology I can at having a baby, your baby is probably not going to be that much different. Even if you find some Nobel laureate to be your your sperm donor, you still um, but where we're going, we're going to have a lot of options. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.